0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 178, Chinese Community Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So it has been a wild week where I have overcommitted myself, in all realms of life. I know, so shocking if you know me. But real job, tours, I have volunteer stuff I've been doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I had an episode that was like 50% complete And I can never bring myself to rush through it. I'm like, no, I'm just going to put it out because I feel like every topic deserves like my best work. So what I'm going to do this week is release an episode that I worked on just over two years ago. I think it was May of 2020 about Atlanta's early Chinese community. It was one of the most interesting things I researched um, in this podcast journey. And if anyone hasn't heard it, I'm pushing it up to the top of the list so you can listen to it. So I hope you enjoy and I will be back next week with a new episode. This week, I am covering the history of Atlanta's earliest Chinese citizens. I have said this before, but I did not think of early Atlanta as a melting pot or a city of immigration, especially coming from New York, where the city has a section for what feels like every country. And the neighborhood I was born in was Spanish and Greek, at least in the 80s. Uh, And my grandmother was able to live in America for almost 50 years, and she never had to learn English because her community didn't require her to. So there's parts of Atlanta today that, of course, have this story, um, but not in the 1800s my Atlanta assumptions weren't exactly wrong. In 1890, the entire state of Georgia had only 1.78% of residents with foreign patronage. But also, this city never fails to surprise me. It was a visit to Greenwood Cemetery and the small Chinese burial ground that got me wondering who these people were. With no southern version of Ellis Island at the time, how did they get here? What work did they do? What were their names? How did the South embrace them? Today, we're going to cover all of those questions and more. Let's start with some basic background of Chinese immigration in the United States. After the First and Second Opium Wars, the latter, which ended in 1860, the United States and China entered into the Burlingham Treaty. This established good relations between the two countries, lifted large-scale immigration restrictions, but it specifically left out a naturalization option for any Chinese citizen in the U.S., There were already Chinese men in California that had come for the gold rush. Once that faded away, they were able to find work on the railroad. The building of the Transcontinental Railroad started in 1863 and was done almost exclusively by Chinese men, most of whom were here alone without wives or children. And the reason for this uh, was twofold. First, only merchants could afford to immigrate here with their families. And for laborers, there was an idea that the stay in this country was temporary. They would, you know, work for a few years and then go back home. And then second, it was culturally expected for women to stay in China and take care of not only the family, but of their in-laws. What begins to happen on the West Coast is organized labor groups protest that gold and jobs are for white Americans only. And so the Chinese population is pushed into ethnic enclaves, mainly in San Francisco, where they're relegated to low wage jobs in restaurants and laundries. Barred from becoming citizens, they cannot vote and they live in a constant threat of being deported. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was revised four times and goes all the way into the 20th century. Um, But what it did was relegate travel back and forth to China, and it restricted immigration for certain professions. In 1888, the Scott Act banned all Chinese laborers, even those with paperwork, from um, entering and exiting the country. Three cities in Georgia had a sizable Chinese population in the 1800s, and they were Augusta, Savannah, in Atlanta, in both Savannah and Augusta, the community was made up of mainly merchants who were legally and financially able to send for their families and bring them back. Um, and so those communities grew and thrived and flourished. Atlanta was different, made up of majority launderers and a few restaurant owners. So because the community remained single and male, it whittled down by even before the mid 20th century. The earliest mentions I found of Chinese business owners in Atlanta were from 1886 a Laundry under the Telephone Exchange Building on Marietta Street, and in 1887, Sam Ching's Laundry on Decatur Street. The question of how to classify Asian people in the South was one that white leaders didn't quite know how to answer. Politicians on the West and East Coast thought of this as a very pressing issue, but Southern legislators didn't want to deal with a third race. They were knee-deep in trying to figure out how to separate and disenfranchise Black from white. And so Chinese in Georgia... Weren't exactly white, and they weren't exactly black. Um, they, Some of them had W's on their licenses, um, and some didn't. Some actually just had the word yellow. In summary, though, they were not relegated to black space during Jim Crow. So they were not forced um, to go into separate places or sit in, in the back of streetcars. In 1892, the Geary Act passed, which said all Chinese immigrants in the U.S. had to register with the federal government and carry paperwork with them at all times. Two years after that, the Georgia Office of Internal Revenue sent letters throughout the state asking for these documents. And this is how we have data that at least 13 towns in the state claimed at least one Chinese resident and white residents had to witness and sign their forms before mailing. In Atlanta, Chinese men almost all owned laundries. On practically every street downtown Whitehall, Marietta, Decatur, just to name a few. They had their own Freemasonry Lodge. They collected dues every month, thrown it into a communal pot, and then if something happened during a, a rough time in your business or a rough time in your personal life, you were able to borrow against that money. There was even a Chinese reporter for the Constitution that would translate and report the community's news for print. There was definitely a fascination the white community had with these immigrants and articles about their strange customs abound. Most of them about Chinese New Year traditions, um, some of them about internal strife, like when the Masonic Lodge treasurer was found stealing money. And First Methodists even had a Chinese clergyman visit their congregation to speak all about the culture and the country of China. But all of these were also really racist, like horribly disturbing, will not repeat it aloud, racist commentary. Just think of every Asian trope that is heard today, multiply it by 10, and that is what they were writing. In most mentions, the Chinese people of Atlanta were labeled as celestials or Chinamen, and that was on a good day. In 1900, when Lung Fu died at Grady Hospital after a failed amputation, his funeral arrangements were published in the paper, but with the wrong time. So many people wanted to come and see the spectacle that a quote-unquote celestial funeral would be at Westview Cemetery that they had to devise a plan to keep the general public away. So they, I think they said his funeral was in the morning or in the afternoon, but it was really in the morning, um, and they were able to have a private ceremony. Although Few was Protestant, Chinese burial traditions included burning punk sticks or incense around the body, and so people were trying to line up to see this. In 1895, Atlanta held the Cotton States and International Exposition, and I'm actually working on an episode covering the city's three big expositions, but this one in particular was very intimately connected to the Chinese community. To give you a quick summary about it, the event was going to bring the world to Atlanta and Atlanta to the world. So each country was solicited and supposed to be represented and have an exhibit that they financed. Now, whether that actually happened is a whole other story, but they did have a small international village section Along Bleckley Avenue, today that's 10th Street, so if you take um, the Beltline all the way up kind of into the bike path, along that street was a whole bunch of exhibits, um, including the Chinese village. Think of it as an exhibit showcasing Chinese customs, culture, and trade. In March of 1895, Ao Aoyang arrived in Atlanta and checked into the Aragon Hotel. He was visiting from New York, college-educated manager of a Chinese department of a Wall Street bank called Yellow & Co., and he was here to secure the placement of the Chinese village and the position of running his operations. There was not enough Chinese labor in our city or even in our area to actually get this exhibit built and operated. So what Ao Yang obtains is a congressional resolution that allows him to bring in workers from China, specifically for the exposition. Basically, he has a monopoly of the importation of Chinese people, something that is normally illegal. And the federal government wasn't exactly sure what the details of his plan were because when 206 workers showed up at the U.S. border in New York demanding entry, the Treasury Department only allowed it after contacting him and then asking an escort from the department to travel with them to Atlanta. And this sounds really weird, but a lot of lessons were learned from the Chicago Columbian Exposition, which happened just a few years prior, where 500 Chinese workers arrived and only less than 25 actually returned to China. So part of this group of 206 workers headed south were 34 women, ages ranging from 16 to 24. And this was super rare for Atlanta or or Georgia, because there was only one Chinese woman in Augusta and one in Savannah and zero in Atlanta. The reasons for this are long and complicated, but it starts with the 1875 Page Act, which explicitly banned the immigration of Chinese women into America. And this law stemmed from the idea that all Asian women were prostitutes. So there was a charge to keep morality in the U.S. and the foreign temptress out. And this trope has been extended to almost all immigrant women throughout history. That's another soapbox for another episode. Long story short, 34 Chinese women at the Cotton States Exposition was shocking for both white and Chinese population of Atlanta. Lum Ling was a prominent and well-known member of the Chinese community. He owned a laundry at 181 Whitehall Street. He had been called as a translator in court cases involving other Atlanta Chinese men, and he was leader of the Masonic Lodge. He was extremely concerned that Ao Yang and Leon Lam, his associate, would sell the women after the exposition was over and then send undesirable older women back to China in their place. Wealthy U.S.-Chinese merchants were reportedly willing to pay upwards of $1,000 for a wife. So Ling hired an attorney, Colonel William Glenn, and a writ of habeas corpus was presented, stating that these women were being held against their will. The two attorneys for Ao Yang and Lam claimed they did not have enough time to respond to the claim and they wanted a postponement, which was granted. So while the parties waited one week for the next court date, those tied with the exposition made sure to spread enough rumors that Ling and the local Chinese community simply wanted these women for their own wives. And this was the only method to achieve it. At their next appearance in court, the judge called each of the nine women in custody, and they testified through an interpreter that they were all here on their own free will. Satisfied, Judge Newman ordered them to return to the Chinese village at the exposition. Disappointed, but not defeated, the local Chinese men take it upon themselves to place the expo village under surveillance. So on November 22nd, three men were stationed on watch duty, and they witnessed several carriages pull up to the exhibit, sneak 20 women inside and then disappear into the night. The men chase them up towards Petrie Street, but then lost sight when they turn the corner. Lumling rushes to the Atlanta Police Department headquarters around midnight and he's pleading with the chief to telegraph San Francisco or the cities that they may be passing on their way to San Francisco and say these women are being brought to be sold into marriage or prostitution. And the police chief is like, listen. I need a warrant to do all this, and you don't have one, and I'm not going to make those calls. The local community once again hires white legal representation and files another writ against the two men with the exposition. The federal government takes on the case, but it never appears to press any charges. Eventually, the party makes their way to San Francisco, and none of the women would ever return to Atlanta. We don't know if they'll ever return to China. Of the 206 immigrant workers who came for the Cotton State's exposition, when the exhibit closed, 60 remain. The following year, Lum Ling would go to China to reunite with his wife and bring her to Atlanta. Like so many other Chinese workers in America, he had left his family and then risked everything to return. I explained earlier how difficult it was to legally do this. So for Ling, he had to have an extensive batch of paperwork on him at all times and essentially sell his story upon reentry and hope they believed him. He made it to China, but on his return, he was held up at the border in Washington state for many, many months. There was talks in the local newspapers about whether he would ever make it back to Atlanta and he may just start life again in San Francisco. But the good news is, he does come back. And Mrs. Lumling becomes the first official female Chinese resident of Atlanta. In 1897, the couple welcomed a baby girl, the first Chinese baby born in the city. Again, the white people of Atlanta are very intrigued. And they send a constitution reporter, along with the paper sketch artist, to literally report back the details and a photo of the baby. And Lum is not having it. He gets pretty angry about the whole thing. And the reporter cannot understand why on earth this would be an issue. So there's some back and forth. In the end, the artist gets some quick sketches and quick drawings. And they do up a little mock-up for the newspaper. Uh, And they write in detail about how surprised they were to see the baby has rosy skin and is not yellow as they expected. Ling and his wife went on to have two more children. And the three, George, Charlie, and May, were born naturalized American citizens. Atlanta's Chinese community, while the subject of curiosity, also dealt with arrests and drug busts, most often connected to opium. In 1896, 19 men were arrested inside Concordia Hall related to opium usage. So while the hall was owned by the Concordia Association, it was rented out to numerous different organizations in the city. The Chinese people of Atlanta maintained a joss house, or a temple there, and they also used it for their Masonic Lodge and their social club meetings. In 1900, there were 75 members of the Chinese community, and they received news that the Chinese Prime Minister, Wu Ting would be passing through the city. This was a huge honor for the city. So although the dignitary wasn't even getting off the train, the entire Chamber of Commerce was there to meet him and shake his hand as he headed further south. In 1902, he did actually visit Atlanta and he gave a speech at the Library Association. The city went into full entertainment effect and they even formed a subcommittee to plan his events, which included staying at the Kimball House, having dinner at the Piedmont Driving Club, and even an event at the Grand Opera House. It was also the turn of the century when we got our first American Chinese food. Chop Suey Restaurant was located on Alabama Street, today that's underground Atlanta, and in 1907, new management was undertaken by Zhu Jung, whose gravesite started this whole episode research for me. In 1908, the Ponce de Leon Park, which I talked about in the Ponce City Market episode, was newly remodeled, and it had its own Chinese restaurant called Oriental Café. Before 1920, some Chinese men had married white women in the state of Georgia. They had to. There was no Chinese women for them to marry. But it wasn't really until the 1920s that legislators grew concerned enough to start passing laws. You have to remember that the 1920s, in all of its fun history, it's also the decade of eugenics, nativism, and the 1924 Immigration Act. In 1925, House Representative James Davis of DeKalb County proposed a bill to define who is white and who is considered a person of color and make sure those two groups did not marry. It defined by law that white means Caucasian, and it cannot include Negro, African, West Indian, Asiatic, Indian, Mongolian, Japanese, or Chinese blood in their veins. I mentioned this earlier, but there were unanswered questions about how to classify Asians in the South, so this answered it for them. The 1927 miscegenation law included Asians, and it was on the books until 1967. There were debates about whether their children could or should attend white schools. In 1931, there was even talk about revoking the funding for white schools who enrolled Chinese students. And it would be the active parents' protests and testimony that would convince legislators to drop that idea. It was not until the Immigration Act of 1965 that finally ended race-based quotas and opened up immigration to hundreds of different nations. So today, Atlanta is a host to so many different cultures, nationalities, and races. I mean, we have Clarkson, whose nickname is the Ellis Island of the South. For me, it was eye-opening to learn about these smaller, early communities that seem to have been forgotten over time. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's early Chinese community. As I said at the start of the episode, Greenwood Cemetery has a small Chinese burial plot. It's right next to the Greek section, which is a little easier to find. Uh, and it's marked with a large obelisk in the center, sponsored by the Qi Hung Tong Chinese Freemasons, dated 1911. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.